Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and welcome to Episode 5 of Popcorn Junkie. On this week's episode, I'll be reviewing Hardcore Henry, The Boss, and Demolition. Let's get started. Are you going to lay there? Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Swallow that blood in your mouth. You're going to stand up and go spill this. waiting for Hardcore Henry since I saw the first trailer last year. This has been a movie that I've been excited to see how it would turn out. I've known of the director's stuff. Uh, his name is Ilya Neyshuler. He's a Russian musician. He's part of a band called Biting Elbows, and he's made these music videos for his band going back to like 2010, 2011. And they were all shot on GoPros, and it's all stunt work and action and fighting from a first-person point of view. And since seeing those, it was only a matter of time before somebody gave him a budget and decided to let him make a movie. That brings us to Hardcore Henry. And the story is basically that Henry is part of an experiment that makes him part cyborg. He's got a cybernetic arm and leg. He has uh, inputs in his chest and he runs an atomic battery, and it all takes place in Russia, and after his girlfriend gets stolen by some Euro-trash, long, white-haired, psychic bad guy, for lack of a better word, he goes on a rampage, essentially, through Russia with the help of Charlotte Copley in numerous roles, and goes about killing all these different henchmen, and other cyborgs in order to bring down this essentially psychic mafioso supervillain sort of thing. And it's hard to describe him. But the story isn't as important here. It's mostly about the stunt work and the effects. This was an effects-driven movie, and it's all about finding great visuals for the camera. Like, if you've seen the trailer, you've seen him fall through buildings, he uses an escape pod to fall from a blimp, he jumps on all kinds of things, and it's lots and lots of parkour, and there's this one scene where they're on a chase in a country road, he's riding on a sidecar to a motorcycle, and goes right through a van as it blows up, and then lands on another van, tosses a grenade in, is blown forward from that van into the sidecar again. And it's all about the visuals for this, and the visuals are fantastic. They're all kinetic, and it's all very, very fun to watch. Although I will say, for a lot of people, if you get motion sick very easily, the beginning of the movie gets very shaky. It is very shaky cam, and it's hard to watch at points if you get motion sick. I was able to hold on as best I could because it does shake a lot, but there, you know, there's a story point for it because he is kind of adjusting to this cyborg body, and by the movie's end, the camera is very still, and it's not as shaky as it was at the beginning. As far as the story goes, um, I would have liked to know more about the bad guy. Like I said, he's psychic, and they reveal that pretty early on. It's not in the trailers, but it's revealed early on that the guy is psychic, and the psychic effects are good, 
you know, shot from the first person, the guy's thrown around, the camera's thrown around the room, and it looks good for psychic effects. But at the same time, we only know about as much as Henry knows. We see the movie through Henry's eyes, so we learn about what's going on through Henry. As much as people have complained and will complain, because I've seen all these different complaints about the movie not having great story, being so thinly written, and being all shaky and hard to watch. And at the same time, you know, I can't argue with them. That's true. But that's not where this movie's strong suits are. It wasn't intending to be well-written. I mean, the Ilya Neyshuler is a Russian native. English is probably his second language. So he's writing, you know, a movie in English as as it is his second language. So it's written like a lot of those cheesy 80s action movies, stuff with like Van Damme and Steven Seagal and Chuck Norris. You know, it's got those kind of one-liners thrown in. It's very much like one of those movies. And I think trying to compare it to movies that have very well-written character arcs and storytelling is kind of missing the point. Because the point of this movie wasn't to tell a great story. You don't attach a GoPro to somebody's head and do all kinds of action stunts and special effects to tell a good story. It's about the action. It's about the kinetic energy of the movie. And that is where it excels. And I feel like saying it's not good in these other areas is almost unfair to it. I feel the same way about Hardcore Henry that I do about Deadpool. I think Deadpool has a lot more fun with it because the people who made Deadpool spoke English as their native language. But at the same time, Hardcore Henry is a blast. And it is just so much fun to watch, especially if you're into action movies. And the first-person perspective, I think, will be the next iteration of found footage. Because the GoPro camera is going to be way cheaper than whatever cameras they're using for found footage. And this way, with GoPro and with the first-person perspective, we'll be able to experiment more with how we tell stories in movies. Like with Hardcore Henry, people have been making comparisons to video games. Call of Duty, Far Cry, all these different action shooter games and punching games. And that's where it takes a lot of its source material from. Like the visuals do look like the intro to a video game, but that's not a bad thing. Like it's fun, it's still fantastic. And I could see a video game being made set where you are Henry and you're doing this and they can add more to it if they wanted to. As for the future of first-person movies, you can do this with horror, more sci-fi action stuff. You know, the possibilities are endless to anybody willing to try it. The only thing is, like with a lot of experiments, like with 3D and found footage stuff, once something becomes popular and it's done over and over again, there's people that follow in that line, like how Clash of the Titans and all these other converted 3D movies came out after Avatar, and all kinds of garbage found footage movies came out after Paranormal Activity brought it back into popularity. First-person movies could easily go terribly wrong, where they're made on the cheap to make a bunch of money for studios, 
especially small, independent, and struggling studios, and their terrible—they're even worse storytelling than what we got with Hardcore Henry. Even more terrible dialogue and acting, and less and less interesting effects done. Because the effects here are great, especially given their low budget. It feels a lot like how Neil Blomkamp did all this great effects work with District Nine, but the movie didn't cost like a hundred million dollars. It cost around 10, 20 million. And if they try to go cheaper than that, with the effects budget, we could end up with all kinds of terrible GoPro movies. But only time will tell if that will happen. Meanwhile, I suggest you see Hardcore Henry, especially if you're into big, fun, cheesy action movies. That sweater just says, I give up. You're making me feel very insecure right before my date. Don't. If you could hear these sad basset hounds, they'd be saying, Claire, put us above That's your not waist. what my boobs sound like. Please don't zip me up in your jeans. Let me see this. Claire, it's like Geppetto. Melissa McCarthy is an interesting actress. You know, she came on the scene with Bridesmaids and uh, her show Mike and Molly, which I think is still on the air. I don't know if she's gone full movie star yet or not, but she's kind of hit or miss with me. Like, I don't hate her. I don't think she's terrible, but a lot of her jokes seem to hit the same note. So depending on where she is in movies like Tammy and Identity Thief, she isn't all that funny because the movie she's in is terribly written and unfunny to watch. Whereas movies like Spy and The Heat are much more fun to watch and she comes off much better in them even though she's essentially playing the same character she usually plays. And then she'll appear in things like St. Vincent with Bill Murray and Naomi Watts and it's a completely different character and she's still very good in it. So yeah, it depends on the movie she's in. And the boss is more on the lines of Tammy and Identity Thief, where it's very, very broad. And the jokes are very scattershot. Like this is birdshot jokes where it's meant to scatter and whatever hits, hits. And everything else can miss as long as something hits. But uh, the story the story goes, uh, Melissa McCarthy is a businesswoman who is very, who is like this motivational speaker and like venture capitalist. I imagine her basing this character a lot on Donald Trump. Like this is a female Donald Trump in a sense, only way less bigoted. Anyway, um, her character gets caught performing insider trading and she goes to jail for five months. And in the meantime, she's lost everything. All her assets, all her businesses, all her access to money and all her employees, save for Kristen Bell, who was her assistant and who she treated poorly, but is the only person she knows to go to because everybody else has completely left her behind. And Kristen Bell lets her into her home with her daughter and after some failed attempts to get back into the business world, Melissa McCarthy decides to make a for-profit Girl Scouts. 
there's like this analogy for the Girl Scouts in there and like they're very weak and there's this very pushy mom and it's all about, you know, very vague concepts and nature stuff and not very usable skill sets. And Melissa McCarthy decides to instead make it for profit where the girls who sell the who sell Kristen Bell's brownies that she makes are making money and money is put away for a college tuition fund and it's about for profit business. And her doing this kind of sits very wrong with that with the not Girl Scouts in Chicago, in the part of Chicago where she is. And in the meantime, she's also harassed by Peter Dinklage, who plays an ex-boyfriend of hers that she kind of wronged on her way to the top. And it's all kind of muddled. It's not very well strung out story-wise, and it follows a lot of tropes. Like, somehow the third act turns into a heist, and there's very broad misunderstandings that could have easily been fixed if somebody just asked somebody directly what was going on instead of making assumptions. And it's, it's okay. It's not great. It's not along the lines of Spy, which I only kind of enjoyed, or The Heat, which I really enjoyed. Melissa McCarthy, is she's got some great one-liners in there. She has some fun chemistry with Christian Bell as the straight woman. And the girls are kind of fun. There's a probably like late teens actress who plays this girl that's constantly being referred to as a giant and who gets some fun lines in there. Peter Dinklage is fun, even though his character is very weird and doesn't exactly make sense, but he still has great chemistry with Melissa McCarthy. Like, I feel like the actors meshed well, but the script wasn't very well thought out. Like, I feel like they wanted to stick to a lot of tried-and-true sitcom tropes just so they can have fun. Like, this was more... Like, I, was, I get the feeling that this was more fun-making than it was fun-watching. And there's some good stuff. There's some fun... You know, people get some funny lines here and there. Tyler the Bean is okay. Like, he's very nerdy like he's very awkward and nerdy and he's got a crush on Kristen Bell and they're okay like they're not great but it, it's it's a movie that perfectly defines good but could have been way better if they developed more of what they were trying to do with the Girl Scout analogy like I could see this more like if it wasn't so much about the weird Peter Dinklage rivalry and it was more about Melissa McCarthy building up this for-profit Girl Scouts and tackling that sort of non-profit scam that a lot of organizations seem to have. Like, organizations that have you give money in and they give it to charities that may or may not essentially help the people that are in there. It feels like it's taking money away from people and then not investing it in a way that helps them back which is a very capitalist way of thinking about it. And that could have been an interesting way to tackle it, but it's never really addressed after a certain point. By the third act, it's more about a heist and everything else before then is completely forgotten. But it's okay. Like, if somebody said this was one of their favorite movies for this year, I would have been like, okay. 
and then just moved on. Like, it wouldn't bother me that this was one of their favorite movies because it's got some funny stuff in it, and if that's all they want, then they're good. Otherwise, it's okay. Like, it's not even Melissa McCarthy's best, but it's okay, you know? I would wait until it comes out for you to rent, then watch it when you're at home, and you could have some more fun with it, and you don't have to go to a movie theater for it. But hey, if you like Melissa McCarthy and you want to see some fun, if you want to see her do her thing, go ahead, be my guest. There was love between me and Julia. I just didn't take care of it. A bulldozer. Yeah, you can buy almost anything on eBay. This was another independent movie that didn't come out in a lot of theaters. And interestingly enough, it only really came out in the Regals in my area again. I get the feeling that Regal Cinemas is trying to bring in more of that independent crowd. Whereas I thought Cinemark was trying to do that, but I think it's... I think in my area, Cinemarks need more screens in order for them to try that, whereas the Regals are more willing to give up screens for independent films. And in this case, we've got a movie with a French director I didn't recognize, and starring Jake Gyllenhaal as a financial trader, I guess. He works in finance for his father-in-law, Chris Cooper, and at the beginning of the movie, his wife gets in a car accident and dies. And the, throughout the movie, he's kind of... He's very numb about the death. Like, he admits that he didn't really love his wife and that he's been going about her death very unusually. Like, it wasn't a good marriage. It wasn't like, but it wasn't a bad marriage. It was, it's a very interesting way of looking at it. And along the way, he starts writing these letters to a vending company where he meets Naomi Watts, who plays a pot-smoking uh, customer service uh, representative for this vending company. And she lives right in the area, and she starts corresponding with Jake Gyllenhaal and kind of helping him realize why he's not grieving the same way that Chris Cooper is and that the mother-in-law is and that even his, his parents are grieving. And Jay, along the way, Jake Gyllenhaal meets uh, Naomi Watts' son, and they also and kind of and the two of them form this sort of friendship where the son's kind of a punk, and then Jake Gyllenhaal kind of helps the son realize who he is as a person along the way. And the demolition refers to Jake Gyllenhaal's obsession with taking things apart, because there's a line that Chris Cooper gives him about the way to fix. A marriage is like fixing a, an old car where you have to take it apart see what to see what's wrong and then put it back together again. And rather than put it back together again, Jake Gyllenhaal gets obsessed with taking things that aren't working apart. Like he starts with a, his broken refrigerator, he moves on to stuff in the office that doesn't work right, and then he starts essentially just breaking his house and, say, and just taking apart his marriage after being involved with a New Jersey demolition crew where he's helping tear down an old house. And I think that part's interesting. I think the part that tackles the way he deals with his marriage being this sort of violent outbreak of emotion that he goes through in destroying everything around him that he's come to loathe about his life. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal does a great performance 
in the movie, even though I do think the characters are a little overwritten. Like, the dialogue feels a little stilted. Like, it's it's very novel, like, prose dialogue. Like, it's something you could read, but doesn't sound authentic when you hear it and when you watch it. So there's a lot of stilted and expository dialogue that doesn't always work. And not all the actors are great. Chris Cooper is good. Naomi Watts is great. The actor who plays the son is good. It's okay. I think the I think the dialogue is made up with the with the storytelling, and I think it's a decent little independent movie. Like it's not one of my favorites. Like I wouldn't like I wouldn't you know I don't love this movie the same way I love movies like uh, Nebraska or Philomena or like The Descendants where it's independent and it's very character and story driven. But Demolition, I think, suffers from, like I said, the overwriting of the dialogue, which is made up with some of the performance, but not all of them. And it's still great. Um, the only other thing I would say is there's this weird thing they do where Jake Gyllenhaal puts Naomi Watts on speaker every time so we can hear her voice. And they never really address it. It feels like a, a uh, cheap way of getting around hearing Naomi's voice without doing some kind of ADR. Like, they didn't want to go back and do ADR, so they just had Naomi Watts record through the speakerphone. Otherwise, why wouldn't they just have Jake Gyllenhaal hold the phone up to his ear and we hear her voice the same way he would hear it? I don't know. It felt very weird, and it's never really addressed, so it's just kind of there. Like, does he, he doesn't do it with anybody else. Like, if he did it with his father-in-law, or if he did it with, you know, some other guy, like, that would make sense. The fact that he only does it with Naomi Watts is very weird, and it feels like a cheap way around what could easily be a day of ADR, and shooting it where he's on the phone talking to it like any other person would. And that's the thing, my dad is a guy, is the kind of guy who does things uh, through the speakerphone, but he does it with everybody. He does it with literally everybody he talks to because he prefers using the speakerphone so his hands are free. But they never address that that's why Jake Gyllenhaal does it because Naomi Watts is the only person who calls him. I feel like I wouldn't be harping on this if, like, the son called him, the Chris Cooper's character, the mother-in-law, the other parents. Like, if he talked on his cell phone or even the house phone, like, we hear voicemail on the house phone... But if he did the house phone speaker as well as the cell phone, I feel like that's that's the kind of stuff that would make sense to me and that would be part of his character rather than just this weird thing that kind of stands out. Anyway, point is, Demolition is good. If you want to see it, check it out, and you won't be disappointed. Okay, after the break, we'll be talking about experiments in filmmaking and how they may or may not have changed history. And I said, oh, oh, and the northern lights commenced to glow. And she said, oh, oh, with a tear in her eye. Watch out where the huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. Watch out where the huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. While last week's episode was very meandering and trying to come up with a discussion points 
last minute after a change in the schedule. This time around, I'm thorough. I've got notes broken down about the subject. And the subject is to go along with Hardcore Henry, experiments in filmmaking. Basically what I mean is experiments that change the way that people make films. I went all the way back to the very beginning and just started talking about the guys like the Lumiere brothers, Louis Le Prince, Edward Moybridge, you know, the guys who started making motion pictures. And then the next real innovation came with sort of Edison taking that and telling a story in the early 1900s, I think 1906 was the year, with the Great Train Robbery. And it was an act where the first motion pictures in the late, in the Victorian era, the 1880s, and into the 1900s, those motion pictures were essentially like, the first movie is a horse galloping. And then a bunch of the Lumiere brothers have done like, scenes from a garden party and people walking down the streets of Paris and it's very mundane things, but it blew people's minds because this was pictures. Like they've seen paintings, they've seen photographs by this point. They've never seen pictures move on a big screen before. And so just seeing those things really blew their minds. And then in 1906, The Great Train Robbery was the first thing to actually tell a story. It's told a story of a train robbery. And people got to see, through editing, the story getting told through these moving pictures. And this was also a time period where they shot uh, the train coming at the screen, and it would actually freak the people out in the audience because they thought the train was coming right at them because this is so new to them. Like, they think the train is coming at them because they see it on this big screen. This is the time period we're talking about. After The Great Train Robbery, we really see story getting told through editing with D.W. Griffith, who was the guy who made Birth of a Nation. And it was really the first American blockbuster, so to speak. It was the first American motion picture to make big money. Birth of a Nation was a phenomenon when it came out. And I think it probably still is a phenomenon, depending on where in America you go. Because Birth of a Nation, if you've never heard of it or never seen it, is about the Klan. The first American motion picture success is about the Klan being the heroes and saving the South from white people in blackface. I feel like not a lot has changed since then. But that's just me. Anyway... D.W. Griffith had this major success with Birth of a Nation, made the studio all kinds of money. He made the movie and it was released in 1915. The next year, the studio made a sequel called Fall of a Nation based on the sequel to the book that was... Yes, because Birth of a Nation is actually based on the book about the Klan. There was also a sequel book called Fall of a Nation and the uh, movie Fall of a Nation failed miserably, and has been completely lost to history. D.W. Griffith, in the meantime, was making his own movie as a response to the critics up north who were saying, this movie is racist. How do you depict these terrorists as the good guys? They're murderers, they're killers, they're rapists. And he made this movie called Intolerance, which is also, in its own way, 
a kind of real innovative film because it told four stories simultaneously through editing. And they're about kind of roundabout ways of saying how intolerance is terrible and it brings down empires. It's told in four separate stories with the fall of Babylon, the crucifixion of Jesus, a Renaissance massacre of Catholics by the Huguenots in Paris, with the then modern story of a factory worker who gets pushed out after a strike ends badly at a mill, then turns to crime and is hanged because of intolerance to workers' rights, I guess. It's all very roundabout. And I feel like if you wanted to tell how intolerance is a bad thing, there was better stories that he could have done that with. Like, I feel like he could have worked with the Jesus story, but at the same time, Jesus didn't exactly die because of intolerance. Like, they weren't intolerant, unless you're counting the fact that the Pharisees were intolerant to a radical sect of Judaism. Like I said, it's a very roundabout way of trying to undo the racist undertone, undertones, their overtones, the racist overtones of Birth of a Nation. And like Fall of a Nation, intolerance failed miserably with the American public. Nobody went to see it. Unlike Fall of a Nation, there are like four different cuts of intolerance and it's out there in the public domain. So good for D.W. Griffith. His movies are saved. Sucks for Hollywood. Their first ever sequel to a major motion picture has been lost to history. Probably for good reason. Uh, after D.W. Griffith, the next major kind of experiment in editing came from the Soviet silent film Battleship Potemkin by uh, Sergei Eisenstein. And it's about a revolution by the Soviets to overtake the Tsars. And it was about a massacre of the Soviets on this battleship that was in the harbor. And a lot of what it is remembered for is the cutting and the editing and the use of the images to tell the story, which kind of furthered along what the Great Train Robbery started and kind of cemented the editing that we know in film today that is the standard cut from one shot to the next shot to the next shot to tell this story. So you have, like, the famous scene from Battleship Potemkin is this baby carriage running down the stairs, and it cuts back and forth between the baby carriage, the mom, and the soldiers coming into march against the Soviet revolutionaries. And so that all this is going on on these steps that are in uh, Odessa, in what is now Ukraine, what was then part of Russia. And the ironic thing is, that never happened. There was no uh, massacre in, in Odessa. But Eisenstein was able to tell this compelling story that was sort of historical fiction. Like, he's telling a story of Soviet revolution against the czars and the might of the czars coming down on them, despite the fact that that never happened. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff you will see in propaganda film. I mean, I talk about that in all kinds of the Christploitation movies. I see how this never actually happens, but that doesn't stop people from thinking it actually happened because they saw it on the big screen. 
a couple years after Battleship Potemkin comes out in Russia, America switches from silent to talkies with the jazz singer. And once again, the biggest innovation in American cinema is racism because the jazz singer is about Jewish crooner Al Jolson putting on blackface and singing jazz. And that is the first movie to feature a soundtrack where you hear the music to go with the images on screen and it blows people's minds and it's the entire centerpiece for Singing in the Rain is the switch from silent to talkies. That's how major this was to cinema. And it still goes on. That's why we have Oscars for sound, for two different types of making sound for the movies because Al Jolson decided to put on blackface and sing Mammy because we are terrible people. Anyway, after the talkies, the next innovation in film didn't really come until Walt Disney made it possible for there to be full feature-length animated films. Disney had fun shorts, great animated shorts. Him and the guys at Warner and all these different animators were able to make fun little shorts to go before movies and to go in, like, the Nickelodeon theaters. But nobody was going to take a full motion picture animated movie seriously until Disney made Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And with the success of Disney Animation cemented American animation as essentially child's fare, where other countries don't have that mentality to animation and they're allowed to be more experimental. America has been cemented with animation being for children thanks mostly to the success of Walt Disney, who made his animated movies for a wide audience. And while you will get stuff like Heavy Metal, Fritz the Cat, with the movies of Ralph Bakshi, and with all kinds of stuff like Don Hertzfeld and all kinds of the people you find on the internet nowadays, at the same time, motion picture animation has been for kids in America. And it still tends to be thought of that way, despite the fact that animation can do so much more than that, but it's we still owe it all to Disney with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to prove to people that animation could be a viable source for films. The next innovation in live action movies, color. By that point, the technology had you developing the film in a way that you could only see it in sepia tone and in black and white, you know, very lacking of color. And both Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz cemented Technicolor for mass appeal. Like, it showed that you could make a movie and develop it in color. And even though it didn't become popular until the 50s to make movies in color, because making them in black and white was cheaper, in the 30s, with Gone with the Wind and with especially with The Wizard of Oz... Technicolor really proved that you could do more with a movie by making it in color the way that people saw the rest of the world. 
And it was only until later that it, that Technicolor technology was cheap enough to do it regularly in Hollywood. You know, later in the 50s and by the 60s, most black and white movies are only done by the avant-garde and the independent, the people who can't afford big-budget Hollywood stuff. The next major innovation really came from Orson Welles, who kind of made the first grassroots blockbuster, so to speak, the first grassroots success movie, because Citizen Kane came after his success with the War of the Worlds broadcast, which, while it didn't make people think that aliens were actually invading, it was deemed a major radio success, and RKO gave him the money to make his own movie, and so he essentially tells a bastardized version of the story of William Randolph Hearst, who was the paper mogul at the time. And because he was making it so liberally from Hearst's life, Hearst shut the movie down. Like, he used his entire press empire to quash the success of Citizen Kane. And they went completely underground. Like, they would show this movie in tents, and they would make its money back. That's how successful Citizen Kane was at the time. And even though it wasn't, like, major success the same way, like, Casablanca was, which came out that same year, and, you know, most of the other stuff from Hollywood, despite Hearst trying to tramp down this movie that was only partially based on his life, Citizen Kane became a major success, at least for Orson Welles, who went on to become one of the biggest players in Hollywood at the time. Nothing really happened in filmmaking, so to speak. That was There wasn't really any major innovations or experiments until the 50s, 1956, with this biblical swords and sandals epic called The Robe, which was one of my grandfather's favorite movies. And the reason is because The Robe was shown repeatedly on television. The Robe was the first movie to be made in widescreen, in the uh, 4-3 aspect ratio that we see all our movies in now. Before 1956, all movies were made in that standard sort of full screen that, we, that you used to get with VHS and DVDs back in the day. All movies were made like that. And in 1956, The Robe showed this big widescreen so you could see all kinds of stuff alongside what you would normally see. And because of that, it was able to be made specifically for the new televisions that were coming out. And while most theaters couldn't handle the widescreen, the televisions that were coming out were could handle them much better. And it was... I don't think it was... That, no, I don't think it was that. I think it was just because it was able to be sold to... Te- I think that's more of a success of television sort of saturating a product because that was a, that was made available to television because movie theaters couldn't show it at the time. But still, The Robe, which is this biblical story about somebody finding, I think, the Shroud of Turin or some sort of artifact going back to the crucifixion or, you know, something in line with the Roman crucifixion uh, was the first movie ever to be made in widescreen, which is now the standard for filmmaking. If you go to the movies now, you see it in a widescreen, no matter what. That's that the movies aren't usually made in full screen anymore, unless they're direct to DVD or video or something. The next thing to come up was through 
the master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock, because he helped bring about all kinds of storytelling and editing twists and suspense through his movies, and especially through Psycho. Psycho really changed the game in terms of filmmaking because it kind of told this story, this suspense, thriller, mystery sort of movie that would go on to develop the horror genre as we know it now. Like, it was the first real slasher movie, but at the same time, it was able to use camera work that was able to hide that the actress wasn't getting slashed on screen, and it was able to tell this story in a way that was just mind-blowing to people at the time. And that's why they make the movie with Anthony Hopkins about the making of Psycho, because it was such this really game-changing movie at the time. Like, people didn't want this to be seen. You know, people didn't want audiences to see this movie. It was so crazy to them because of the way Alfred Hitchcock cut it and edited it and put it all together. After Hitchcock, really the biggest innovations and experiments come from all over the place. Like, in the 60s, people were experimenting all over the place. Drugs, sex, music, movies. And in the 60s, the biggest innovations come a lot from... The French New Wave with movies like Breathless, which I haven't seen, but in researching for this discussion, I, it was one of the movies that kept coming about. And it was just one of those movies that really experimented with editing in a way that helped future filmmakers kind of develop their way of editing. Like Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson, all kind of take notice of French New Wave style like Breathless. And then concurrently, you have this sort of Italian style with guys like Fellini, and um, especially Eight and a Half, which is a movie sort of semi-autobiographical about a filmmaker trying to make his ninth big movie. And instead, Fellini makes his eighth and a half movie. But because he makes it so kind of surreal and mind-bending, it went on to influence guys like David Lynch and Charlie Kaufman and all kinds of psychedelia stuff. So a lot of really experimental uh, filmmakers take notice of Fellini and especially Eight and a Half. I mean, Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan and David Lynch's Eraserhead can really trace a lot of their style back to movies like Eight and a Half. And meanwhile, in America, we got experimenters like Kubrick with 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was very silent and played so much with visuals and effects that went on to inspire guys like Spielberg and Lucas with the what they could do with sci-fi. So all this experimenting was going on in the 60s and pushing the boundaries of what film could do. And so while all this technological and effects-driven and editing-driven experimenting is going on, you also get stuff that kind of pushes the boundaries with marketing, with what movies can get away with, with uh, Midnight Cowboy, which is a movie with Dustin Hoffman and John Voight uh, about a cowboy who goes to New York City and kind of tackles the kind of debauchery that was going on in New York City that was become infamous for in 
all kinds of stuff. That's where it got, you know, Hell's Kitchen, thing, you know, all the kinds of crime and sex and drugs, all the crazy stuff that was going on in New York City during the 70s was kind of captured on film with Midnight Cowboy with this, you know, hick coming to town and meeting Dustin Hoffman. And it was really pushing what kind of stories you could tell, what images you could show on screen. Because Midnight Cowboy got an X rating, which is equivalent to the modern NC-17, which means nobody but adults can see this movie. And yet Midnight Cowboy went on to win the Best Picture Oscar that year because it was willing to push what you could do with the movie. And despite the fact that I confuse that with the John Travolta movie Urban Cowboy, it really cements the kind of movies you can make now. And while not a lot of movies take the lead from Midnight Cowboy, if somebody wants to show sex and drugs and all kinds of, you know, debauchery and sin on screen, the way we can get away with it now is kind of in thanks to Midnight Cowboy's success. The 70s, the biggest innovation that come out wasn't really technological, it was more... Uh, promotional, financial. The 70s brought us the blockbuster, the legitimate blockbuster with Jaws and Star Wars. Spielberg and Lucas helped bring about this new style of filmmaking that was very action and adventure driven that brought in millions to Hollywood studios. You know, because they would have success, like nothing still beat Gone with the Wind adjusted for inflation in terms of success. But it wasn't until the 70s with Star Wars and Jaws that you people kept going back to a movie over and over and over again. And so much of modern Hollywood is based around the success of Star Wars and Jaws that it's really the biggest innovation to come out of the 70s. And by the 80s, you get into the digital sort of experimentation going on. Because by the 80s, computers have gotten more common. You can use them to make film, to help make a film. And we see that first with the Disney film Tron. Because Tron was one of the first real digital movie effects on screen. Like it wasn't, like it was so, so far ahead of what was available at the time that the Oscars refused to nominate it because they didn't consider it an actual visual effect because it was made in the computer. And oh, how the times have changed because it usually is the computer effects-driven stuff that gets nominated for the visual effects category. But yeah, Tron was the first movie to really push what you could do with digital effects. And the next movie to really do that is this little movie I only heard of in passing called Young Sherlock Holmes. And it features the first CGI character, the first fully rendered CGI uh, character sort of effect on screen. Because there's a shot in the movie that features a stained glass window of a knight coming to life. And that is the first real effect that was made with computer-generated images. And that would go on to inspire the stuff of the 90s with Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. Those effects that kind of meshed 
visual, like practical effects with what you could do with digital was brought about by young Sherlock Holmes, this weird, mostly forgotten movie of the 80s. And the guys that helped make that effect would go on to make stuff for the uh, for movies like The Abyss and Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. Like, I think it was actually ILM, the studio that helps with Lucas and Spielberg and is this really big effects house, was the one that made that young Sherlock Holmes effect. And as the, if the experiments go on, we get more experimenting from Pixar, who kind of took what Disney did with Snow White and applied it to computer-generated animation by making the first full-length digitally-made animated movie. And that went on to completely change the way we do animation now because 90% of commercial animation is done with CGI. And at the time of Toy Story, it was almost unheard of. Like, you mainly got... You know, little stuff, like little shorts and little clips. You might get something for a commercial, but most of the animated stuff is not... You, could, like, you couldn't tell a story with, the, with computer animation at the time. And then Toy Story blew that all away. And because of the success of Toy Story, digital computer-generated animation is the standard of studio animation in America. So yeah, while I'm talking about all these effects-driven uh, experiments, at the same time, people are still experimenting with filmmaking and editing and style and all things of that nature. Like, 90s brought us Quentin Tarantino and his sort of taking from New Wave and all the movies he would watch from the 60s and 70s and kind of made it commercial for Hollywood. And... At the same time, we're getting guys like Charlie Kaufman, who has really been this avant-garde filmmaker his entire career. Like, Charlie Kaufman is a guy who made Being John Malkovich, where it was actually one of the first times you saw a first-person POV. So Hardcore Henry is the first full first-person movie, but Being John Malkovich really uh, experimented with first-person back in the 90s. And... Kaufman also did adaptation where it's an, a movie about adapting a movie about a book about orchids. And I haven't seen it. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I just saw Charlie Kaufman's animated movie, Anomalisa, which is kind of this stop-motion animation that looks almost photorealistic. And I dug it for the most part. I wouldn't watch it again, but I'm glad he's still experimenting with film. Like, I'm glad he's making the kind of movies he wants to make rather than something commercially viable. I believe also in the 90s is when we got guys like, like when we got the movie Irreversible, which is this French movie featuring Monica Bellucci, where it's completely shown in reverse. Like, the movie takes place from end to beginning. And while nobody else has really tried that again, it was the only movie of it, you know, it was the first time anybody tried to show that style of storytelling where you start at the end and then make your way to the beginning. I still need to see that too. There's so much experimental stuff that I haven't really seen. 
I should also mention that the 80s and 90s also brought us filmmakers like Terry Gilliam, who kind of experimented to a to less successful degrees. Like Terry Gilliam is is a great experimental filmmaker, especially with stuff like Brazil and Twelve Monkeys and Time Bandits. But he's not like commercially viably experimental. Like Terry Gilliam, as much as I love his films, they don't make the money that allows him to do anything he wants. Like, as he goes on, he becomes more commercial with stuff like The Brothers Grimm. And while he still experiments around with stuff like The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and The Zero Theorem, it's not as successful as experiments done by guys like Kaufman, even, where being John Malkovich was, you know, you know, really talked about at the time and adaptation is still talked about, and Charlie Kaufman is still regarded. And while Terry Gilliam is well-loved, his movies aren't as successful at kind of bringing these experiments to light. Like, people are kind of put off by them. And I feel like that's what how he is. He doesn't like making populist stuff. He likes tinkering. He loves playing around with what you can do, which is what brought me to this discussion with Hardcore Henry. You know, playing around with what you can do with a camera. Following that up, we go to really the movie that kind of brought the precursor to first person, found footage. The precursor to found footage that kind of told the movie from the cameraman's perspective, so to speak, and really kind of brought all these trends to the forefront, Blair Witch Project. It was a phenomenon. I never actually saw it, and I never really experimented experienced it i by the time i really paid attention to blair witch i had known it was a fake like i didn't believe it was real and at the same time i I haven't seen it but i know it has really influenced all these kind of independent horror movies and hardcore henry still kind of owes itself to blair witch because that's kind of where that first person was made popular, where it was shown to be a viable way of filmmaking. And while it's most found footage is mostly done now with all kinds of camera tricks and all kinds of, you know, crazy ways of going about it with paranormal activity and the various offshoots of that and knockoffs of that and stuff like Chronicle and Cloverfield, Hardcore Henry is kind of the next iteration of that, where the character is fully first person, but there's no cameraman. You're literally seeing it from the person's point of view. And I feel like that was the next logical step to get the camera out of the way and to just tell it from the person's point of view. Uh, Same year as Blair Witch comes out, the biggest experiment of 99 was probably stuff like Fight Club and The Matrix. The Matrix really influenced sci-fi and, I mean, the the Matrix brought us the slow-mo, which is been used to death by now but at the time was a way of playing with effects that people had never seen before so the matrix just kind of blew that out of the water but by the time the sequels come out everybody had done it to death unfortunately and meanwhile fight club also experiments around with what you can do with storytelling and once I think about the same year, maybe the year before, the usual suspects, all these 
avant-garde, usually unseen films are being shown to a wider audience. And I think because of the success of Tarantino, we got to see independent film rise as a viable genre, as a viable means. You know, Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, Charlie Kaufman, Brian Singer, all these guys helped to make independent cinema a viable medium for up-and-coming filmmakers. You know, Neil Blomkamp, independent filmmaker. Peter Jackson, independent filmmaker. All these guys that start small and don't get the big budget Hollywood release like the way that Orson Welles did coming off of War of the Worlds into Citizen Kane. Nowadays, you it's more likely to see independent filmmakers start the way that Quentin Tarantino and Peter Jackson and all those guys in the 90s did. And then they'll, once they do that, they'll get those big butts. That's how we got, I mean, that's how Ryan Coogler started out making his own independent film, Fruitvale Station. And then he's already made Creed and he's already signed on to Black Panther. And he's probably going to end up making a sequel to Creed if the studio does, you know, the studio keeps him around. So he starts out the same way that guys like Tarantino and Jackson and Kaufman and Singer did coming to Hollywood through independent cinema. And as we talk about Jackson, let's talk about his experiment that kind of shifted filmmaking in a sense, Lord of the Rings, which brought about motion capture. Motion capture still isn't recognized by a lot of film awards because it is considered like not, like it's almost its own category. And I feel like Andy Serkis deserves his own honorary Oscar if they aren't going to do a category for this or if they aren't going to include it in the visual effects category because what he's able to do through motion capture is infinitely better than what he's able to do as an actor on screen. It's incredible what he can do. Andy Serkis is better remembered as a digital character than as an actual actor on screen. And what he does with Gollum and what he does... Even, you know, what he does with the King Kong movie, despite the fact that it was an overbloated mess. And what he does as Caesar in Planet of the Apes. It's incredible what Andy Serkis is able to do with a motion capture suit. And I feel like that should be a more viable option for filmmakers. And I feel like it's not taking off the way it should. But hopefully we'll see more of that and we'll see more investment. It's usually done more in video games now than in filmmaking. But I feel like as you do more visual effects in film, you should do more motion capture for that to help make it easier, to help better integrate these humanoid characters into a digital framework. You know, but I'm a big booster for Andy Serkis, so that's just me. Uh, The next one I have up is kind of iffy in terms of experiment. It's Sky Captain World of Tomorrow, which was an experiment in filmmaking entirely on a blue screen. Because while Lucas was really pushing for more green screen stuff, he still used a lot of practical sets. Sky Captain World of Tomorrow was completely digital. And it was the first movie to really try that. Even though it didn't really work and it looked more like a cartoon and it really didn't sell well to audiences, it at least tried that. And that is also how we get to the last experiment that I'm talking about, Avatar. James Cameron's Avatar owes a lot 
to Sky Captain World of Tomorrow because so much of Avatar was filmed on blue screen and so much of modern action movies are filmed on a set with green or blue with a green or blue backdrop and no real practical sets that Sky Captain World of Tomorrow became essentially a trendsetter. But Avatar is not remembered for being filmed on a blue screen. It's remembered for being filmed in stereoscopic 3D. Not just anaglyphic red and blue 3D from the 70s. This was two-camera setup to film in the stereoscopic 3D with two separate shots simultaneously. Cameron really innovated what you could do with that. And that's mainly the reason why it's the biggest non-adjusted-for-inflation film. Like, Cameron made a big success with Titanic, but Avatar made all kinds of money because of the way it pushed the bounds of of cinema with 3D. And unfortunately, he's come to regret that because people... Because studios and filmmakers choose to go to cheap route and convert it afterwards to 3D to make up the money rather than using his stereoscopic camera system that he designed perfectly. He took most of the 2000s to set up this camera to film in 3D. And nobody wants to shell out the money for it and shoot with it. They would rather convert it afterwards because it's cheaper. And that's how you get garbage like the Clash of the Titans remake, which looked like garbage in 3D. It looked like garbage in 2D too, but what are you going to do? So that was the last real innovation outside of like really small, independent, and avant-garde stuff that I don't really pay attention to. I'm a popcorn junkie. I see what's in the cineplex. You know, that's, that's me. I don't pay attention to a lot of the independent stuff as much as I probably should, because that allows me to find more experimental stuff like Hardcore Henry, like the stuff of Charlie Kaufman, like all the kind of French New Wave and Italian Giallo and whatever you want to call Fellini, and all this stuff you can find in independent cinema and especially in foreign cinema. But there really is only one independent cinema art house theater by me. And... I tend to go for the Cineplex because it's easier. Because I work eight hours a day on an awkward schedule that doesn't really allow me to see things in the evening like nine-to-fivers can. But at the same time, do support local art house theaters. See whatever you can. Always give movies the benefit of the doubt, even if it looks like garbage. Give it a shot. See it for yourself. Make your own decisions. Never listen to critics. Stop listening to me right now. Please don't stop listening to me right now. Please, I need more listeners. Please don't stop listening to me right now. But seriously, stop listening to me right now. Don't take my opinion as the word, as the final say on something. Don't take any critic's word as the say on something. You are an adult. Unless you're a child, then you're a child. But you are your own person. You can make your own informed decision about whether or not you like a movie. Go out there and see a movie for yourself and make your own decision. Unless you're strapped for cash and you can only pick so many movies, then pick what you know you're going to like and test the new stuff when you can. But please go out and support movies because movies are great. 
even if they fail, movies are great. Movies are so integral to all cultures across the world. Every culture has its own movies by now, except for like Amish. There's no Amish movie. You know, there's no Amish cinema. There's no, there's not really like Inuit cinema to my knowledge. And no, Nanook of the North doesn't count. But yeah, besides the technologically unadvanced civilizations, all cultures that allow for filmmaking have their own films. So if you get the chance, see whatever you can and make your own decisions. So on that preachy note, let's go into the plugs. I am on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie, you can support this podcast and help me make a better podcast. Because the first goal on Patreon is to make $100, and then I can start a second diary podcast called Make a Better Movie, which is me going into all these different franchises, all these different movies, to make a better version than what we got. There are all kinds of tiers. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. Also, you don't have to support the podcast through Patreon. You can go to popcornjunkie.podomatic.com, and you, there you can find a PayPal link just above the iTunes subscribe button. And there you can make your own donation through PayPal, however much you want, one-time recurring. Make a donation to the podcast through PayPal. You'll be really helping a guy out. But speaking of iTunes, I am verified on iTunes. Go to iTunes, look for Popcorn Junkie in the podcast section of the iTunes store, and there you'll find my orange mug chewing on popcorn, staring at a movie. So find Popcorn Junkie on the iTunes store, and if you really like the podcast, leave a five-star review. Once you start leaving five-star reviews, I'll read them on the podcast, either at the end or the beginning. I'll have to start getting reviews before I start putting them in the podcast. So start leaving five-star reviews, and I'll read them on the podcast. If you want to follow me on social media, I always post my initial thoughts on a movie coming out of the theater or sitting watching it at home, depending on what the movie is. All you have to do is go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, and there you'll find my orange mug again, chewing on popcorn. And if you like the page at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, you'll get all my updates on when new episodes come out, on when I see a new movie in theaters, and you can keep in touch and even leave your comments on, on my work. Also, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at cornjunkiepod because some jerk-off took popcorn junkie before me. And if you follow at cornjunkiepod on Twitter, you'll get the same stuff you get from Facebook. So follow the podcast either at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie or on Twitter at cornjunkiepod. Also, if you want to leave me any other notes, send me emails. There's a new email address specifically for the podcast. Just send your send your emails to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. Send me comments. Send me your thoughts on the podcast. Send me the kind of stuff you want me to talk about in future episodes. Send me just any kind of feedback you want, or just tell me you like the podcast. And if you want me to read it on the air, I will read emails on the air. If you want me to do so, with or without your name, just send your emails to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and my only experiment is not sucking.
song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud to find more of his music. Artwork for Popcorn Junkie has been provided by Nafyo, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafyo.deviantart.com for more of his work. Warning is gone. Moving along.